welcome to another episode of Sustainable Goat. I'm Steve Cassingham, and I interview the greatest of all time in sustainability from the past, present, and into the future. And in this episode, I talk with Nathan Sedlender, co-founder at Everlastly. Now, when it comes to navigating sustainable products, it can be difficult to discern which products are completely sustainable throughout the entire process. And Nathan and his team are working on solving this problem through a really creative solution. So let's dive into the conversation with Nathan. So yeah, I figured we would just start and dive in. You're in San Francisco now, but are you originally from there? And kind of where did you grow up and what was your childhood like? Yeah, so I grew up north of San Francisco. I am from the Bay Area generally. I grew up in West Marin near the Tomales Bay. And I was essentially a farmer for my childhood growing up on a cattle ranch. Went to Tomales High School. We had you know about 100 head of cattle cow-calf operation where we were essentially raising cattle for beef sales and beef consumption and was up every morning, you know, taking care of animals and then off to my little school in Tamales, California, and basically had a pretty agricultural upbringing. That's so interesting. I mean, did that change kind of the view of how you looked at school, if you will? Like, meaning like you're already working in the morning and then you go to school and then you come back, whereas like, you know, if you're not in the ag industry, you're not up that early, you know, you're kind of like, well, am I going to, you know, work after school or something like that? Yeah, I would say, you know, one of the things that I do believe in terms of school generally is that there's an opportunity for more application of what we're all learning, whether it's early stage or college or whatever it happens to be. I'm a big gap year fan to get some real world experience that then you can apply what you're learning in, say, college, for example. And I do think actually that some of my early schooling was very much, you know, affected by the realities of being on the farm, whether it was, you know, sort of life and death kind of situations with animals or the business of running a farm. I was involved in organizations like the Future Farmers of America, where you had to think about and execute business plans for you know, smaller scale aspects of the farm that you were on. So I think there was a lot of opportunity to apply just general things that you were learning because you were actually working. You were on the farm. Interesting. So is that where your kind of entrepreneurship side kind of started? Was just by being surrounded by that? I mean, I would imagine you had mentorship and learning along the way, but I mean, how was it kind of working on agricultural plans and achieving them? Yeah, no, I think that's absolutely where my own entrepreneurial background really did start. I think one of the things about being on a farm like the one I was on is that you spend a lot of time on your own. So you build a lot of independence. You know, you're out in the fields doing whatever, looking for cat, lost cattle or whatever it happens to be and thinking a lot about, you know, how you can improve an operation or the business itself. And I think I had a lot of time to think about and apply some creativity to what we were doing. And I've always sort of been, I think, an independent and somewhat creative person. So I think that was just a good space for me to be in to actually come up with new ideas. Now, my parents were not that excited with all the crazy ideas I was always coming up with. (laughs) But, you know, you had to start somewhere, I think. And there were a few that we implemented that actually, I think, were successful. And maybe that sort of started to get things going in terms of being able to apply ideas that actually could make a difference. That's fantastic. What's one of them that actually did work? Because obviously, whenever you start anything and you try, I mean, you try a bunch of things and most of them fail, but every once in a while, something works. You know what? I'm kind of a spatial person. So the way that we had the farm divided in terms of where different animals were, we didn't just have cattle. We had cattle and chickens and horses and sheep and whatnot. And so I was always thinking about the movement of animals from different places because, you know, you had to move fields and whatnot based on grazing or any kind of activity that had to take place around immunizations or whatnot. And so I was actually constantly thinking about how we could restructure the way that animals were moving. And we wound up actually redoing a bunch of fencing and barn access and whatnot based on some ideas that I had. Then we actually did a small project of trying to think about what were the savings that actually happened out of that. So, you know, kudos to my parents who actually helped me really see the idea all the way through we're open enough to making some of those changes and then thinking about what the impact was to the business. That's incredible. I mean, what an awesome learning experience too, to kind of like really dive into it, get your hands on it and kind of see the tangible results too. 
So where did you kind of move after that? What was it like, you know, college, education, early career? I mean, what kind of was that process and how you kind of brought that entrepreneurship thread through? Well, I would say that, well, so my agricultural background led me to actually a gap year, as I mentioned before, and I took a year off working with the Future Farmers of America as an elected official for the state of California, which requires you to take a year off and travel around and do some public speaking and whatnot. Very uh, fun and engaging experience. But then went to University of California at Davis and studied at their agricultural economics program, one of the best programs in the country. And definitely an interesting experience because that's also the beginning of my own sustainability sort of awareness, I would say. I've always been you know, somewhat aware of environment, being on a farm. My parents also really liked hiking and backpacking and camping and whatnot. So I spent a lot of time in the mountains and whatnot. But the combination of the outdoor experience that I had and awareness of the environment with business really came to the front at UC Davis. The Agricultural Economics College or school is within the College of Environmental and Agricultural Economics. And what happened is I was required to take environmental economics course. And that was really where I first learned about this concept that we have this wonderful system called capitalism, but in fact, not all the costs that are being created when you're working on a product or whatnot are being captured within that system. As we all know, negative externalities. And I sort of had this moment, and it's pretty clear to me, sitting in the classroom there wondering, how did we get to this place where we created a flawed system? So that's really was the beginning of my awareness of how sustainability and economics or our economic system was going to be potentially a problem down the road. This was, you know, back in the previous century, I should say. So it was before I think we have a lot of the awareness that we at least have today and a lot of the, you know, climate uh, news and whatnot that we're all experiencing. So it was a little bit of a different environment. But at any rate, so I studied at Davis Agricultural Economics, thinking I was going to stay in the agricultural space, but wound up getting an offer from the then growing consulting world and the first dot-com boom that was happening in the Silicon Valley. So I wound up working then for what is now, at the time was Arthur Anderson or Anderson Consulting now called Accenture, working in uh, essentially new product development and consulting major software companies on how to think about developing software that meets customer needs. And that was a really informative period of my life in not only working with technology and software when you know that industry was really starting to become very strong, but also thinking a lot about the consumer point of view. And I've spent my entire career on the consumer side and trying to really understand how are people thinking, how are consumers thinking, what's important, and how do you meet those needs with products and services and technology. What was that shift like? I mean, going from, you know, almost like an ag mindset your entire life to, I'm going to go into this really fast paced technology side that at the time, like technology was kind of newer, but also like it was accelerating very, very quickly. I mean, I would imagine it scratched the entrepreneurship itch, but at the same time, was it just like this massive learning curve? I think I was a little bit of a kid in a candy store, to be honest. I, uh, you know, spent most of my life in a small town on a small farm, you know, went to UC Davis. Town of Davis is not that big. I actually studied abroad for a year in South America in Santiago, Chile. And I think that was actually one of the other initial moments where I realized that being in a city, you know, that at the time was a 5 million inhabitant city, coming back and moving into San Francisco and working in a fast-paced environment, I think for me and my mindset was rewarding and exciting. And and I also, at that time, really realized that technology obviously was going to be a huge path forward in terms of how we're thinking about solving problems and how to optimize some entrepreneurial thinking in a way that is quick and easier than some of the large capital industries that we've had in the past. Totally. So what's kind of your view on you know, how consumers think? What do you think influences decision-making from a consumer standpoint? That's a great question. I mean, obviously, there's many different consumer scenarios to consider there. But, you know, I think for me in my career, I've always really tried to get back to instinct 
I've tried to get back to, you know, some of the basic needs that consumers have or the basic things that consumers are constantly thinking about. And it really does dovetail into this conversation and sustainability, especially given the fact that, you know, many consumers are thinking about what they can get at what price and how quickly. And we've gotten groomed to a certain extent to think about those things first and foremost, but it really is a fundamental human reality that, you know, we're thinking about how do we provide for ourselves and our family and we've only got, you know, so much money in the wallet and how do we make that last and where we need to go. And whether that happens to be a consumer side or a business side, it's a it's a reality. So, you know, really trying to understand the thoughts, the mindsets, the emotions behind a consumer, I think, is really the ground zero when it comes to trying to meet those needs. And then when you started kind of getting more into your thought process around sustainability, what was kind of your process in terms of how you wanted to solve a problem in sustainability? Well, I think this is sort of the entree into kind of where we are today and the things that I'm thinking about as a sustainability-focused business person. And it really is about the balance between you know the desire to get products and services at a good price, the opportunity to maximize your own earnings or wealth or whatnot, as opposed to and sort of the counterbalance of thinking about what the impact is to the greater good. And I think that sort of gets to the core of, in a way, where we are today as a society and as individuals, which is, you know, how much are we balancing our own individual desires and needs and wants versus the greater good for the society at large, the planet at large, and really places that we're all going to be inhabiting and living, but often offset by time, right? So we may be satisfying that need or that desire that want today, but on many different playing fields, it could impact and it is impacting the broader scale and other people and certainly would impact ourselves down the road, even though we may not feel that. So I think that's sort of the two sides that the balance that I'm constantly thinking about is how do we bring together a vision of what the impact is, how it's going to affect you in the future and meeting the needs and desires of today. That's such an interesting way of looking at it too, because I mean, I guess if you were to ask a lot of people, hey, would you buy this product? You know, that isn't as conscious and then would you want to buy this one that is, you know, price irrelevant, they would obviously choose the one that has a better impact. But that's an interesting reasoning on why someone doesn't or that thought process that the consumer has around, you know, should I make this purchase or this purchase? I think the heart is there, but it's the mind that kind of gets in and says, hey, you know, here are the 20 different ways we could spend this money. Which one's most important? Yeah. And the truth or the reality, I guess, as we all know, I think, is that if you are going to be more considerate of a broader group of people or environment or whatnot, it does often cost extra money to make that a reality. And I think that at the moment is probably one of the things that we are dealing with. Just like you said, if the prices were the same, and one was harmful to the environment and one was beneficial to the environment, we'd probably choose that beneficial product. But as a manufacturer these days, it's cheaper to be harmful to the environment than to be thoughtful for the environment. So hopefully, you know, mass-based, we can start moving into the direction of being thoughtful for the environment and that will spur some capital and innovation towards actually bringing those costs down and maintaining a sustainable economic system along with the environment. Yeah, definitely. So let's dive into a little bit of what you do now. Tell me a little bit about Everlastly and you know how you came up with the concept and kind of the inner workings of why it's needed. So Everlastly at its core is a rating system that does research on the environmental impact of consumer products and assigns a score between 1 and 100 based on its environmental impact within a shopping category. You might think of it like ESG for consumer products with the intended goal to provide consumers with more information about what the environmental impact is of all the stuff that we're buying. We have a second cornerstone that works in tandem with our eco index. And that is we also run an e-commerce platform 
where products that score above a certain threshold are featured, something like a Whole Foods for e-commerce, where Whole Foods came along and said, hey, you no longer need to necessarily spend time reading all of the ingredients on a food level. We will do that work for you and feature those products that are healthy for you and better for the environment. We're doing something of the same with our e-commerce platform. The reason that we did both of those is that we believe wholeheartedly that not only do we need information about the impact to the environment of the products that we buy, but we also need to make sure that consumers understand where they need that information, what that information should look like, can look like, and how to position that in a way that can affect consumer behavior, just like we're talking. So we really wanted to make sure that that information was at the right moment, which from our perspective is point of purchase at the shelf level. And we want to have the opportunity to experiment with how consumers behave with different ways of seeing that information. That's interesting. And yeah, it's, I was reading recently that, you know, kind of the, the age of the internet, if you will, was very much about information. And now at this point, we have more information at our fingertips than we could ever imagine. And that it's almost overwhelming. You can get conflicting information on anything. And so there's been talk that the next age of the internet, Web3, whatever you want to call it, is more about the discernment of that data. You know, How do you actually prove that this is the good data, the reliable data, the trustworthy data? And then how do you make a more educated decision? What it sounds like is you guys are kind of going through taking all this you know, data and information on all these products and going, look, here's our best assessment of what it is. And here's the rating that we would give it because we hold ourselves to a high standard. Does that kind of help in that transition between like information to discernment? Yeah, I think you hit the nail on the head. I mean, it's definitely, you know, it's a challenge and will become more and more of a challenge as we're in a you know age of not only information, but disinformation as well. And so I think that we have to ride a line on, you know, obviously providing transparency, obviously doing the best that we can to show data-driven, scientifically backed, peer-reviewed, make sure that we have redundancy in the kind of information that we are providing. If we're looking at something like carbon footprint, we want to double check that, triple check that, quadruple check that to make sure that we're not, you know, seeing some kind of anomaly with one source. But I think, you know, one of the things that we believe, that I believe wholeheartedly here is that we're in a bit of an uncanny valley of sorts where we've got a ton of information that we can start to assess what the environmental impact is of consumer products. But at the same hand, we also have a massive challenge in getting to the granularity that would truly represent the actual you know, environmental impact of that consumer product, right? And so if you go all the way down the supply chain and you try to understand all of the specific impacts, and companies do this, right? It's called a life cycle assessment. It's really difficult. There's so many variables and so many factors and many aspects of the supply chain are not being tracked. You know, something that came up in an earlier conversation that you and I had, a lot of folks don't even have a computer at the point where they're pulling together, you know, certain commodities or materials or whatnot. So how can they possibly be tracking all this information? But this uncanny valley that I mentioned to me is sort of like we're in between this moment where we have a bunch of data that we can make an assessment of what that impact is. And rather than waiting until we have perfect information, our philosophy is let's take a step forward. Let's take the data that we do have. And let's say that we can get to, a, I'll throw an arbitrary number out there. Let's say we can get to a 75 or 80% estimate on what the environmental impact is of a product. It may not be perfect, but it's not nothing. And right now we're operating in a world of no information. We're making purchases on you know, big e-commerce platforms like Amazon and Walmart and Target and whatnot without any understanding of what the supply chain was of that product and what the impact is of using and disposing of that product. So whatever Lastly is doing with our eco-index is saying, look, we're going to do as much work as we can. We're going to use as much information and data that we can get our hands on. We're going to be as transparent as we can. And we're going to make an assessment that will hopefully give information that folks can start to make good decisions. And as information starts to become more readily available, and as we get better and better, 
then we'll continue to contribute into that algorithm. And, you know, to your point around, you know, Web3, as we get more and more folks on board around the world, thinking about researching, pulling information, we can start to really integrate that as a society and say, hey, let's create the measurement that represents the cost to the environment that so far has been externalized from companies. And let's showcase what that looks like on a consumer buying perspective and see if we can introduce that structure into the economic system of capitalism so that companies are actually competing, not just on price and cost that's been internalized, but now also on all of those costs that have been externalized for so long. Yeah. And where do you think it's going to shake out with, I mean, I think part of this movement is, you know, it's going to be twofold. It's going to be one, the businesses that actually in their DNA, they've stepped up and been like, look, this is what we stand for. And this is what we're going for. And here's the product that we're going to make. And here's how we're going to make it. And we want to be as transparent as possible. And then you have the companies that will kind of feel like they have to do it because the consumers are pushing back and saying, hey, we want that transparency. Where do you think that balance is going to be struck? Do you think it's going to be the bigger companies are just going to mold and adapt or acquire companies or, you know, are these smaller companies eventually just going to overtake the big ones? The crystal ball would be nice in the uh, right. answer to that one. <laughs> Definitely. <laughs> but, but I would say, you know, when I first thought through what Everlastly should look like, I think the lens that I was using was really my own consumer background. And I think that really has driven the point of view that I've brought to the table for Everlastly. When we looked at capitalism, of course, you know, understanding the flawed system and negative externalities, from my perspective, I see that and I say, it's just going to be extremely difficult to expect large companies to make the change that needs to be made if, in fact, shareholder profit is always going to be the driving force. You know, I think we see this in, you know, examples like when the company Danone, you know, you have a CEO who's really trying to make great change and the shareholders say, hey, we're not making as much profit as we should. And so we want to move that person out and move someone in who's going to make more profit. At the end of the day, that is obviously the stated driving force. So, you know, waiting around for companies and industry to make the right change is in my perspective going to be too little too late when you look at the entire economy itself. Obviously, there's companies doing fantastic things. There's no doubt about that. But the larger companies that you mentioned, I just don't think those are going to, those companies will make the kind of shift. Government regulation really is the thing that should be put in place in order to place some guardrails that represent the society at large and the environment that we all live in. But obviously, hard won. In the political environment that we're in today in the United States, let alone globally, to achieve that kind of regulation, I think would be extremely difficult. So coming back to your question, from my perspective, it really has to come back to ourselves. It has to come back to the consumer. We have to make a statement as a consumer economy, as a society of people who like to buy and enjoy things that we want not only great stuff that fits into our budget, but also is not going to destroy the future for the children that we have. And that should not be an unattainable set of objectives from my perspective. But first and foremost, without any information about what is and isn't destroying the planet, there's no way for us to actually achieve that goal. And I think secondly, if we can introduce that kind of metric and I want to talk a little bit more about that metric because it's not an independent metric. It takes a lot of data and information from a lot of great players. It leverages certifications. And, you know, there's a lot of, you know, excellent work being done by a lot of individuals. And our goal is to really figure out how to aggregate that at a decision point. But if we can provide that kind of information at the right moment and if we can move enough consumer demand then I think that industry at large has to start thinking about how to integrate sustainable principles in their products, in their manufacturing, in their design, etc. Because industry will always say, we are doing what the consumer wants. And they believe that the consumer wants the highest quality product at the cheapest price. And right now, that is true. Because consumers you know, are not aware of the impact. 
first of all. And second of all, the impact is delayed by, you know, 10 or 20 years. So it's also hard to sort of feel that impact as well. So we need to all work together to figure out how to move buyer behavior so that that tail can wag the dog. And so I, I think at the end of the day, will it be big companies or small companies? I think the idea is that if we can get a meaningful amount of buyer behavior to change, then we start this competitive cycle on, hey, we can produce something that is not only high quality, not only a reasonable price, but also has a light footprint. That's got to be the goal at the end of the day. Yeah. What do you think makes a sustainable product? I think that's kind of something that's been kind of misunderstood through the market. It's not necessarily just the use of sustainable materials. It's also longevity. It's, you know, labor goes into it. What do you believe makes a product sustainable? So I would say, well, first and foremost, I mean, obviously the traditional definition of sustainability, as you mentioned, includes environment, it includes social, it includes economic viability. So all of those need to be considered in order to create a sustainable product. I'll talk in a second about how our approach has been, which is primarily on the environmental front to start with. But one of the things I'll say out the gate is that when I look at what is sustainable in terms of the planet that we live on, the people that we have, the products that we consume, I don't believe that we should stop producing things that we need, you know, all go back to living in caves and letting animals take over the world again or something like that. I think we have a fantastic planet that we can take advantage of natural resources. We can provide for a meaningful and rich lifestyle with the goods and services that we create. I think what needs to happen is that we need to understand that the natural systems that are in place on this planet that are fantastic, that provide breathable air and drinkable water and soil where we can grow food from need to be in a healthy regenerative cycle. And so we can certainly take some of that water to drink or air to breathe or soil to grow, but we need to do so so that it can be in a positive regenerative cycle and not in a negative system like we have right now where we're taking more out of that natural system than we're replenishing. And so that really does drive, do we need to be 100% perfect on every purchase and every action? The answer, in my opinion, is no. We need to be the percentage which represents a positive natural system so that we can continue to thrive on this planet. So two things, I guess, to start with. One is just, you know, sustainability defined by environment, social, and economic. Secondly, it needs to maintain natural systems. From an everlastly perspective, you know, we're an early stage startup. We, you know, can't bite off more than we can chew or else we'll likely fail. So we started with the environmental side. It's an area that obviously is at a critical juncture as are other aspects of sustainability, but it's the one that we wanted to focus on. And really, we had to start with what were the indicators that could drive a score, an eco-index, where we could access reliable data, where we could access you know, scientific peer-reviewed and data that we can back up with other sources. And just as you mentioned, we kept coming back to some of the primary aspects of what's driving climate change right now. First and foremost, carbon footprint. Let me think that's probably one of the key aspects that we're looking at in terms of a global phenomenon of the changing climate. And one of the metrics where we can get more reliable data, I think, at this day. And I think that's been a fantastic advancement of our society, if you will, is that I think we have a much better sense of what is the carbon footprint of many materials and many actions. So we, you know, the first indicator for our eco index is it is carbon footprint. But I think what you also mentioned is extremely important and is the second indicator for us, which is durability. The story I love to tell is, you know, a few years ago, my wife was in the kitchen and she's you know, yelling something at me and I come in there and she's holding up one of these nonstick pans, these Teflon nonstick pans. And it's, you know, scratched off because we've got a, a metal spatula. And she's saying, please, this is like the 10th one of these I've had to buy. It feels like because we keep buying them, they scratch up, we throw them away in the landfill because they're not recyclable because of the combination of the coating and the material. And I keep having to reinitiate the cycle of the carbon footprint to create that product and the thing is sitting in the landfill what can we do to to make this better and so 
you know, I went and did about 10 hours of research to try to understand what was the most sustainable pan I could possibly find. I got totally wrapped around the axle, by the way, technical information, conflicting information, certifications, greenwashing. I wound up picking one, which arrived a couple of days later in a box filled with styrofoam peanuts, which my daughter pushed over and they flew into the street and down the drain and into the ocean. I'm <laughs> surfing in those every morning today. So that was actually part of the genesis of, of Everlastly was to say, gosh, well, there's got to be an easier way to understand a lot of that information and get that at the point of purchase. But I would say, you know, durability, predicted lifespan, from my perspective, is an extremely important aspect of sustainability. If we could buy products that last twice as long, we could buy half the amount of things that we need to buy, right? And so I think that sort of speaks volumes in terms of how we look at sustainability. And, and I think our second indicator is an extremely important piece of that. So we can say, hey, look, if you're buying a product that has a carbon footprint of X and a predicted lifespan of Y, we can combine those two and give the user, the consumer, a better understanding of, hey, while that might be a lower carbon footprint that you see on this product, if you're going to have to keep replacing that every couple of years, and it's going to be sitting in the landfill, it's not as sustainable as a product that might last for 10, 20, or even a lifetime. You know, if you think about just to kind of come full circle on the pan, we use cast iron pans in our house right now. We've had them now for years. They work great. And I have a feeling we'll have them for the rest of our lives and that our kids will probably be fighting over who gets the inheritance of our <laughs> cast iron pans. That's the kind of durability I think that we're looking for. So yeah, so just to kind of maybe round out what we're looking for in terms of sustainability, carbon footprint, predicted lifespan, we also prize circularity. It's another important aspect. We believe in how our system is going to improve. Right now, obviously, we operate on a linear system. We're pulling materials out of the ground. We're using them and throwing them back into the landfill for the most part. And we believe that there's an opportunity to move, as many do, to a circular environment where we're increasing the efficiency of the materials that we use. We're using recycled content in the products that we're using, and we are designing products for recycling so that we can get into a, a circular environment. So if a product is using recycled content and the product can be recycled or can be deconstructed to be recycled, those are components that contribute to our index. And then we look at certifications too. I think certifications are paramount in doing the work that needs to be done to ensure that the claims, that the actions being taken by manufacturers, that the claims that they're making are in fact valid. You know, We'll do as much as we can to make sure that that's a reality, but there are lots of fantastic folks who are really digging deep in different industries, in different aspects of the supply chain to really confirm that what's happening in the depths of the supply chain and manufacturing are actually valid and that they're sustainable. Fortunately or unfortunately, there's over you know 4,000 some odd eco certifications. So it's difficult for the consumer to understand which ones are valid, which ones are applicable. I think we've all seen you know certifications placed on products that don't seem to fully make sense. And you know there's certifications that are being invented by manufacturers themselves to showcase you know something that they're claiming so i think there's a value that we're providing in reviewing those and applying a value within our index and then just the last aspect of what we look at currently of the five indicators would be packaging and that's you know frankly from a carbon footprint perspective as an example or an environmental impact packaging represents less than most people think in terms of the impact when you really look at the science. However, it's an emotional reality. We've all ordered a product from Amazon that is wrapped in four pieces of plastic wrap and three different boxes that are you know, three times the size of the product. And you're wondering yeah. why do they have to put all that together? So we're just you know, looking at the packaging, assessing the packaging. You know, In the future, we'll be showing an image of the package so that you know what that looks like before you make the purchase. In the future, you know, we'll add additional indicators. I think water usage is something obviously that's uh, becoming extremely important. Toxicity is something that's very important. But as mentioned, we're an early stage startup. So our goal is to start with as much assessment as we can reliably get at the current time with good data-backed information. And then uh, we'll start to expand from there, both in terms of breadth in different indicators and depth, as we mentioned, in terms of quality of the data. 
I love that. And I love what you guys chose to measure specifically out of the gate. And I think, I think part of it also is, you know, you guys are on a path of sustainability, knowing that there is always more to do. There's always more to learn. There's always more to incorporate into, you know, your system, your platform. And it's kind of the same for manufacturers. They know that they actually, and most of them want to go that direction, but it's got to be cost effective. It's got to keep the business afloat. And it's got to be something that can actually, you know, last in that business. For some businesses, you know, they have to invest 30 years into the future and what they're going to do. And, you know, those decisions aren't taken lightly, but at this point, I think those decisions have to be made. And so just knowing you're on that journey. And two things you said, I think are spot on. I think, you know, we have to address this as a journey because we don't have perfect data right now. And we have a history of not caring about what that impact is for logical and rational reasons. When we had, you know, a lot more natural resources than we had consumption, you know, that's obviously shifted. So now we're shifting our mindset, but that path has to be taken. And we have to recognize that, you know, our eco index is not perfect. You know, all the assessment that's happening out there is not 100% perfect, but we have to take a step and we have to take one now because, you know, we try to do this in 10 years when everything is in place, it's probably going to be too late. And we need to start building the awareness in the consumer base at large that there is an impact to the environment every time you make a purchase. And so even if we're not producing perfect information, we're producing pretty reliable point of view. We are transparent on what the impact is and what our indicators are. And we're working together with everybody else to try to get people aware that there is an impact. And I think the other thing that you said that is extremely important is ensuring that we're rewarding innovation and that we're rewarding companies who are trying to make the right changes in their operations to be better stewards of the planet. One of the things that we do from a scoring perspective is we're essentially doing a relative score. Again, our scoring system is one to a hundred. So if you have a product that is really good for the planet that might be scoring, say a 95, and tomorrow a product comes that has a lighter footprint and it lasts longer and has better packaging and is more circular and all of those things, well, your product that was a 95 might suddenly be a 90 because innovation has come along. And so we have an evolving scale in that, you know, at the moment, what we're looking at is the products that are doing the best are scoring the highest and the products that are not doing so well are scoring the lowest. But as we continue to evolve, we're incorporating more data, more products, more innovations. And we start to see those products that are doing better are floating up in the scale and those products that relatively are doing worse or floating down. So it's an approach that's not an absolute approach. It would be nice to look and say, hey, here's all the products that we're purchasing and here's where we need to get to in terms of some of the targets that we have set. And so therefore you can buy only this much of carbon offset or whatever it happens to be. You know, We could make that approach, but from our perspective, we're looking and saying, let's understand how people are making purchases. There's not a budget mindset in terms of the impact of the environment yet. We'd love to get there you know, overall in a meaningful way. But today, it's a moment that you have as a consumer you're thinking about which product you want when you're comparing two products, then we want to show you which one has been more thoughtful to the environment. I love that. I love that. And what vertical did you guys go after first is kind of being an e-commerce store? What's been your market to kind of try and expand the brand? So when we first looked at consumers and we said, okay, we have a couple of different challenges when it comes to selling products that are eco-conscious. There's scads of research that show that people love to say how eco-conscious they are, but when in the dark, they're making a purchase and no one's watching and their wallet opens, they tend to usually buy based on price and convenience. And that's, you know, it's a human behavior. We talked a little bit about my own background and some of the things I base uh, my understanding of consumers on. And first and foremost, I just look at how do people act? What are some of our base instincts? And, and as I mentioned earlier, a lot of our base instincts are around how do we provide for our family and you know how do we get as much stuff as we can to live the richest life that we can with the money that we have and so i i understand that you know from a base human perspective but i also realize that obviously we need to make that change and we need to figure out how do we 
take advantage of other human behavioral aspects to create the kind of change at the cash register. And so when I started to look at that, I said, what are the moments that people act differently when it comes to making a purchase decision? And one of the places that I saw was that when other people are watching or when you can get some reward, social reward for making a good purchase, people often make a different decision. You know, we're seeing it play out on social media today, right? I mean, we are very concerned as a society of how people view us, right? And oftentimes people's social media profile is a little different than maybe their their true life profile because they want to be seen in a certain light. And so I think understanding the fact that if we could find a market where purchases are being played out in front of their community, that maybe we could start to see some shift in how people make decisions. That was sort of the first thing that we we looked at. And then the second thing we looked at was, how do we get our eco index in front of as many people as possible? How do we showcase this e-commerce platform that has uh, transparency on the environmental impact of products? So combining some of those, we looked at different verticals and we found of all things, a market that we thought was pretty interesting. And that is the home goods market. And specifically as those home goods are added to a wedding registry. So we launched everlastly.com with home goods with a, a prominent wedding registry feature with the idea that number one, people getting married in the US where we're first launch are in their 20s and early 30s. So these are folks who are like us thinking about their own future, who have grown up in an environment of climate change, and who are more apt to be thoughtful about the purchases they're making. Number two, the wedding registry is a bunch of purchase decisions that are being played out in front of their closest friends and family. So they have an opportunity to show their friends and family what they care about, and that it's important to think about the future. And so that if you can find those wedding registrants, those couples who are making a statement about who they want to be and what their values are as a couple, here's an opportunity to set up a wedding registry with products that have been rated for a good environmental impact. We take advantage of a little bit of lower price sensitivity since obviously gifts are being purchased by someone else. And since, uh, as we mentioned earlier, some of the prices on environmentally conscious goods can be slightly higher. And then what we really like about the wedding registry opportunity is that if you can acquire a wedding couple to set up a registry, on average, there are 167 guests who attend a wedding in the United States. And so we have this opportunity to get the Everlastly platform and our eco index in front of a lot of people after acquiring essentially, you know, one couple to set up that registry. That's probably the most exciting and compelling aspect of our initial launch is that, you know, we can within a year or two get in front of millions and millions of people without having to spend the kind of marketing dollars on acquiring all of those folks. We can acquire a small set of people who act as influencers and can get our message out in front of a lot of people. So as things develop, obviously the platform looks at the eco index as a differentiator. Again, like Whole Foods did, we're saying we are marketing and merchandising products that score above a certain threshold. And there's all kinds of opportunities to move into, you know, moments where consumers are thinking about the future. Baby is an obvious sort of next phase and whatnot. But the long-term vision is really that the eco index or really an understanding of the environmental impact of the stuff we buy needs to be at the point of purchase. So whether it's the Everlastly Eco Index or any kind of aggregation of all of this impact information, we believe that that needs to be at every point of purchase. It should be at Amazon. It should be at your grocery store. It should be on the package. And it should be a easy to understand way to compare products when you're making a purchase. So we started in the wedding space. There's lots of opportunity in the future, but we really hope that 
and are striving for a long-term vision, which says that let's create a market economy, a consumer economy, where we understand the impact to the planet of the goods we're buying. I think that is absolutely brilliant, though, in terms of an approach. That idea of almost exponentially growing your viewership without spending ad dollars. Because I mean, you can make an e-commerce store with a Spotify sh- or with a Shopify store. You can make a store in a day, and so you have so much e-commerce competition out there. Albeit not all sustainable competition, but I mean, I think the approach that you guys are taking is very different than any other e-commerce store, and that's why I think it will also stick is because you're getting in front of people at that right time. I mean, every think about the parents, the cousins, I mean, all those people that actually log on to purchase a gift, you know, you also are addressing that higher price point, that timing aspect, the public side, the psychology around it. I personally, I think it's brilliant. I think it's awesome. Thank you. And I think, you know, the hope here is really that we're balancing sort of two sides of that human behavior that we keep talking about, right? There is the side of which is greed that we all have, whether we like it or not. It's like, you know, you're looking for great stuff at the cheapest price. But if we can balance that at the same time with the understanding of other opportunities to take advantage of human behavior, perhaps we can, you know, leverage that to create a new way of thinking about what we're purchasing and get that flywheel started where within that consumer economy, within that market economy, we can introduce a metric that changes the behavior of how manufacturers are behaving. Love that. Awesome. So kind of when it comes down to you as being, you know, CEO, founder of this company, how does it feel being in that position of like you're driving the change too? Well, I think that, I guess I feel like this is coming from a point of kind of an obvious need for something very simple, which is just a measurement on this environmental impact of consumer products. And so I think, I don't know, as a leader of this organization, actually with my co-founder and co-CEO, we look at this as sort of an obvious step forward. It feels like when you read literature about environmental economics, there's no doubt and no discrepancy on the fact that we need to measure what's going on and we need to internalize that cost somehow. And so to me, it's sort of less about some grand innovation or some new technology or some you know, brilliant point of view that you know, many startup leaders might be bringing to the market, but it's really about to me, something that is pretty straightforward and pretty, at least from my perspective, sort of obvious that we need to move in this direction. Super challenging, obviously, to get the right kind of metric, to get the right kind of buyer behavior, and also to go up against essentially what is a you know massive economy that stands to potentially in the short term feel like they might be losing some profitability, but in the long term, being able to create the kind of economy that is sustainable for everybody. So I think if anything, as the leader of the organization, my perspective is how do we bridge a time where manufacturers and consumers are thinking less at the moment than they need to be about the environment to where they are thinking about it as should be? And how do we navigate those waters so that consumers can feel good about what we're doing, manufacturers can feel like they have that path that we talked about? and that we can move to that sustainable economic system. To me, I think this comes back to consumer every time. I mean, if your customer is saying, this is something that's important, and this is something that we need, and this is something that we want, whatever the conversation is, even if it's in a standard for-profit, non-environmental, or non-sustainable company, you always come back to what the customer says. And this goes back to those early days that I spent at Arthur Anderson, Anderson Consulting, consulting, you know, first dot com software companies on how to develop software. It's always about what that customer need is and what the customer is saying. That becomes so important. And if at the end of the day you can always revert back to that, then your company is going to do a great job at producing the kind of products and services that are there. So what we're trying to do is shift that customer need and shift that customer behavior and enable consumers to understand what that impact is. And we work in concert with media at large who are telling great stories about you know, what's happening with you know, the environment or great examples of companies who are making good decisions. We're working with the certification companies who are in the trenches thinking about what's the actual impact and accountability in various aspects of the supply chain. 
you know, we work with ESG companies at the investment level who are thinking about where capital is flowing. So it's part of a larger effort, but we really believe that customers are everything, right? Customers always right. And if we can wag the dog a bit from that perspective, then I think we'll be moving in the right direction. That's a phenomenal perspective. I mean, I think that a lot of companies lose sight of the consumer and the customer very frequently. And always having that as your North Star. I mean, most of the time, if your sample size is big enough, or at least you know you're listening to the right people, you know, they'll pretty much be reflective of your whole audience. And I think that's part of really paying attention and honing your business is, you know, what do the people want? Because your opinion is just one opinion. And I think generally our collective job as those of us working in sustainability is increasing the understanding of environmental realities, environmental impact. And I think that that has to be the first step that will really make change is that if people understand, hey, this is our future, this is our planet, and we need to be great stewards of that planet. And you can connect that with your day-to-day behavior in a way that is easy and seamless and makes life work, then I think we've got a solution for the problems that we face. That's such a win. I love it. So a few other questions, one of which is, do you remember your first consciously sustainable purchase? Now, it may be the pan, but was that the first one that you were like, you know what? I want to be very conscious about this decision that I'm making. Because a lot of the people who have answered this question, a lot of it will come down to, you know, I grew up, you know, going to farmers markets and farming. And, you know, I was already doing this just from being a kid. But what was that first consciously sustainable one that you made? I remember this very clearly. And I'm a kid not to date myself of the 70s and 80s. But one of the earliest memories I have of a sustainable purchase and the story that led up to that was I must have been in, I think it was fifth grade, And my mother would pack a lunch for me every day. And it was usually a peanut butter and jelly sandwich and an apple and one of those string cheeses or a cheese of some sort. (laughs) And she'd put it in a paper bag and I would bring the paper bag to school and, you know, have my lunch. And at the end of the lunch, you would throw away the paper bag and whatever else was sort of contained in there. Back then, it was less sort of saran wrap and whatnot. So it was really the paper bag with some food inside of it. And at one point, I started to say, I started to ask myself, why am I throwing this paper bag away? It seems perfectly fine. I'm going to bring it home and I'm going to reuse the paper bag. And my mom did not like this idea. She said, this, you know, we've got all these paper bags. Why are you bringing home this dirty paper bag? So I said, mom, just put the lunch into the paper bag for the next day. It'll be fine. So she acquiesced and put the lunch in the second day. And then I thought, well, geez, the bag seems fine. After the second day, I'm going to bring it back for the third day third day, fourth day, fifth day, pretty soon, I was like, hey, I'm on like day 15. And the bag still seems to be pretty good. And there's a bit of a awareness being grown in the fifth grade that I'm bringing this bag back every day. And we start to as a class, we start to track almost like, you know, days in jail, little slash marks on the bag. Uh, how many days I've used this bag. And we made it to 54, 54 days. Oh my God. Before the bag broke down. And I, this was sort of like this moment that I had as a child where I realized that there's a lot of inefficiencies with materials that we have. And there's probably opportunities to create something that could last even longer than 54 days. And back then it was the emergence of what is pretty common now, but was called Tupperware. And my mother went to a what was called the Tupperware party yes. <laughs> and came back with a couple pieces of this Tupperware and there was a, a little catalog. And in the catalog was a Tupperware lunchbox. And I was like, oh my gosh, this is the new innovation meets my reusable lunch bag. And I said, mom, that's what I want. And that was my birthday present that year was a reusable Tupperware lunchbox, my first somewhat sustainable product, obviously uh, made of plastic, but that thing lasted me for many, many, many years. And I wish I still had it today. Wow. That is an incredible story. Just like keeping track on the bag. I mean, wow, that's incredible. And yeah, I mean, I think, I mean, the Tupperware party thing was definitely a thing, but the interesting part about it, yes, plastic, but I mean, they were good products. They last, I mean, Tupperware is still around, but they last for an extremely long time. And so it's kind of in that longevity of a product, you know, where does that fit? Which I think is so interesting because, you know, you did make the paper bag last 54 days, but 
I'd imagine the Tupperware lasted way longer than that. So a lot longer than that. And if you could make, you know, if you're making Tupperware out of a easily recyclable material that is commonly recycled in municipalities in the US, then, you know, you can create a circular environment with that kind of a scenario. Wow. I love that. Okay. Another question is, where is your favorite place to enjoy nature in the world? Oh, that's a great question. And I have a list of probably about 186 of those, but yeah, <laughs> that's what makes it so hard. And I'm finding out that you went down to Chile. I was like, Ooh, man, that might be in the running too. Yeah. And I, I've spent much of my life traveling and living abroad. I lived in South America. I've been in just about every country in Latin America. I lived in Africa for three years. Wow. In Zambia and South Africa. Recently, I was in Europe for a few years, uh, traveling around, living and traveling around. So a lot of just absolutely beautiful places. That said, I'm a Californian and there's no place like home. And I actually just returned from a small road trip with my family, wife and two kids, where we visited a couple of just beautiful places that I'll mention. One is Yosemite, which is just one of the most impactful national parks, I think, that we have and places on the planet. But the other one that always just blows me away is visiting the Sequoia Redwoods. And I'll just mention for those who may not know about these in detail, there's two kinds of redwoods in the world. They mostly grow in the Pacific side of the United States on the coast. They're very prevalent in California. There's the coastal redwood, and these are very tall. In fact, I think the tallest trees in the world. But then there are in the mountains, the Sierra Nevadas predominantly are the sequoia redwoods. And these are redwoods that live two to 3,000 years with a diameter at the base of the trunk of 30 feet. And there's just nothing like walking through a forest and coming up to a tree that's been around for two to 3,000 years and has the just kind of size and gravitas that a sequoia redwood has. And so there's a couple places to visit. And we went to one of those a week ago and I got up at uh, six in the morning. They opened the park actually really early for people like me. And you can go and just uh, wander through in the quiet and see these majestic giants. And for me, it's just, it's about, I think, being humbled by nature for me. I'm also a surfer as well. And whenever you're in a situation where nature becomes more powerful than your own ego, <laughs> and I think that's the moment where I feel best. Nothing like surfing does that more. Yeah, that's right. Getting rocked by a wave and then going, man, the ocean is quite powerful. It is powerful. It's an incredible reminder. And yeah, I mean, the sequoias are truly incredible. I mean, I grew up in Santa Cruz, so we had more of those coastal redwoods. And I remember you just, I mean, you look up and you're just like, they keep going. They just keep going as high as you can see. Truly incredible. And I think one of the things I learned so much about from at least like learning about redwoods as a kid is how interconnected all the trees are together. Like the rings of five, that will be a family of trees. And you realize that there's so much of this I guess, reliance on each other and codependency that happens in nature, that's truly fascinating. And when you're kind of in the forest and in these situations where it is quiet and kind of have some time to kind of look around, it's truly grounding and humbling for sure. Yes. Yes. Yeah. That's amazing. Cool. Well, where can people kind of interact with Everlastly? Where can they get involved? Where can they reach out to you guys? What does all that look like? So we have everlastly.com, which is our e-commerce site with home goods and a wedding registry that is live, everlastly.com. We launched in January of this year, 2022. So hop on, you can make a home good purchase if you want directly. You don't have to be getting married, but you know, if you are set up a registry, check it out. And on everlastly.com, you'll see our eco index. We call it Evergrade. You'll see it prominently displayed on all the products. Uh, if you view a product, you can see detail on those five indicators that I mentioned for every product. So definitely check us out on our website. Obviously, we're, you know, we have a presence on Instagram and we've got a blog with some growing information about new materials or assessment of existing materials. We just finished work on an interesting project going back to frying pans 
after the Teflon world sort of started to realize that that was pretty bad for the environment and us ceramic coated nonstick pans are now all the rage and we did a deep dive on ceramic coatings and turns out it's not ceramic at all and ceramic is actually a marketing term for something else so that's the kind of thing that we're posting on our blog to just give uh, consumers a little bit more information about the kind of research that we're doing but come check us out at everlastly.com follow us on instagram and we're looking for folks who believe that we can make a difference by making purchases of goods that are both great for us and great for the planet. I love it. I love it so much. Nathan, thank you so much for taking the time and just hopping on the call. I'm so, so pumped about this podcast and getting it out there to everyone and just continued growth of whatever lastly we'll have and you know, really how you guys are going to hit the market hard. Steve, I appreciate it. It's been a pleasure uh, being on your show and talking with you and looking forward to our next conversation. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat. If you know somebody who is getting married or you are just in the market for checking out some new products for your home, check out Everlastly and everything that they have to offer. And thanks again to Nathan for being a part of the podcast and sharing the story of Everlastly and his story as well. And if you've been enjoying these episodes, share your favorite one with a friend or post it on social media. Your support goes a long way and the more the community grows, the more impact that we can have on the world. So thanks again for listening to this episode of Sustainable Goat.